Hello and welcome to Accessible Theology. My name is Aaron and I'm here with Michael. And our goal is to make the study of God's word accessible to our listeners so that we and you would better love God, know truth, and live accordingly. Hello and welcome to another episode of Accessible Theology. We've got the Minor Prophet Major Message with the Book of Nahum episode coming at you today. Uh, and as per usual, just want to start off with a little bit of background information to, to acquaint us to the Book of Nahum uh, so that we can answer our three questions, which we will reiterate as we go throughout our episode uh, but the book of Nahum is a prophecy of, uh, it's, it's, Nahum is the guy who's prophesying, and he's prophesying to Judah, the southern kingdom, about Nineveh. And so this is interesting because we've already spent some amount of time discussing Nineveh in uh, a previous episode uh, when we discussed the book of Jonah. Because as you know, hopefully, uh, and remember, if not from us, from somewhere else, that Jonah was sent to Nineveh with a message of repentance. Uh, and they repented. But now, however, uh, just about a hundred years later, it's it's not exactly a hundred years, but about a hundred years later from the time of Jonah to where Nahum is prophesying, uh, again, the Ninevites are have fallen into sin and as we will see in the book of Nahum, they refuse to repent. Uh, so they have gone back to their old ways. And even at the prophecy of Nahum, they do not repent. And so uh, destruction comes upon them. Uh, this book was written uh, within the window of 664 to 612 BC. Um, if we want to get even a little more specific, we could go somewhere in the 660 to 630 range. We know this because of uh, what is written in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, uh, describing the fall of Thebes, which is uh, an historically documented um, fall of a city, and that happened in 612. Uh, and so uh, there's good evidence supporting uh, that time window. Uh, so again, it's a, it's a prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh, and we're going to see some very similar themes popping up uh, as we've already seen before, uh, one of them in particular relating to the fact that God is slow to anger, uh, and we praise God that he is indeed slow to anger, but that is a good transition to get us into our first of three questions which is the creedal connection, which we're asking, how does this book connect to the creedal statement of Israel? Uh, and so um, Michael's going to explain that a little bit further. And if you don't remember what the creedal statement of Israel is, uh, he'll also discuss that a little bit for us. Uh, so Michael, how exactly does the book of Nahum connect to Israel's creedal statement? Yeah, so we'll go back to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. We are told there that Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting 
the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so in this, we see the very character of God being revealed. And if you go to the book of Nahum, then we see a very clear reference back to this creedal connection, which again, the minor prophets, there are 12 of them in the Hebrew Bible. It was simply called the 12. And Nahum's uh, contribution to this goes back like almost all the other ones does and explicitly ties in to this creedal connection, making sure that we understand that all of human history is riding on the character of God. Mm. And uh, this truth is what keeps both justice in view, mercy in view, and grace in view, and this steadfast love, this said that God has for his people. So all of this is in the background as we see the prophets uh, giving these historical denunciations out. So this is what God reveals to Nahum to share with Judah about Nineveh. This is what is said starting in verse 2 of chapter 1. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. Hmm. So what you see here is very similar wording, but Note, and this is this is important, it emphasizes in Nahum, it emphasizes his wrath and that he won't clear the guilty. There's a hint here of his slow burning anger. And I think this is important because as Aaron rightly noted, a hundred years prior, God sent Jonah kicking and screaming, as we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the people of Nineveh so they would repent. God could have just destroyed Nineveh then without sending a single messenger. He didn't owe that to them. Mm-hmm. He didn't owe them a second chance. He could have just completely wiped them out for their barbarism. And this, and, and one thing that's important to note about the people of Nineveh is they were, we know, and we have, ar- and we've, you know, archaeolog- archaeologists and others have discovered um, writings and transcripts of theirs that identify them as one of the most barbarous and torturous and just despicable people mm-hmm, in world mm-hmm. history. The the Assyrians invented and bragged on ways of doing torture. I, I won't even read, like I've, I've done some uh, papers regarding the Assyrians in the past. They are just disgusting some of the things they would do to people. Mm-hmm. They, um, they would be, they, they would bring the same kind of revulsion to mind in the, Israel's day that the Nazi regime or the, when you think about the Russian regimes with Stalin and others would bring to our minds. These Assyrians were horrible people. Like if you lost to them in a war, every one of your people were going to die slowly and painfully. It was, Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is the people God is speaking to. And a hundred years before this announcement that he's given to Nahum, he offered them salvation and not only offered it, but he gave it to them when they repented. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to know he is slow to anger. And yet that slow to anger, that slow fuse does eventually burn out. And when that slow fuse burns out, this is what we see that he is a jealous and avenging God and wrathful and that he will keep wrath for his enemies and not clear the guilty. So we learn this about God and we should rest in this as Christians, we should not be turned off 
by the wrath of God, we should see this as a expression of his goodness. Uh, his wrath is, as some have said, it is the expression of his intense love for his own righteousness. And this Assyrian people and their despicable treatment of Israel even, which we see in this text that Assyrian was used as a scourge, God says, as a, God uses the imagery of that he used them as a whip against his people Israel for their sins. And yet Assyria went beyond that and would inflict beyond just uh, what was necessary to be a whip and would be um, even increasingly barbarous, barbarous and hateful towards Israel in ways that God did not condone and in ways that God would punish them for. And so what we see then here in this text is God saying, the fuse is up, the anger is coming down, and we as God's people should rejoice in that. And so mm -hmm. that kind of actually begins the transition point. So Aaron, if you want to mention our second and third points as we move forward as to why that matters and how it comes together in the personal work of Christ. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that's that's entirely um, necessary for us to keep in mind because just like Israel, we are reading um, the revelation of God uh, in its entirety. Obviously, we have more than, than they do now. And so it's important for us to keep all of Scripture in mind as we read one particular portion uh, and so we're looking back at what has taken place and we're seeing the character of God on display in his revelation to us. And um, we need to remember that, you know, we we have the, the end of the story. We know that um, God is both, uh, as we've already said, jealous and avenging, but he's also slow to anger. Uh, and so we, again, are thankful for that fact uh, and that connects back to Israel, but it also looks forward to what is to come. Our, our final two questions are going to be answered uh, together today, and that's something that you're probably used to by now because we've done it enough times. Uh, but they are the canonical cohesion question, which asks how does this connect to the rest of the Bible, but also the Christological culmination question, which is wondering how does this book point us to Christ? So, Michael, how how from from the book of Nahum, how do we see uh, this book pointing towards or even being quoted in the New Testament? And how do we see the message of Nahum culminating in Christ? Yeah. So in Nahum, uh, there isn't a whole lot of strong, explicit pickup in the New Testament. We see these themes picked up again, but the one place where we do see maybe one that we could, I, again, this isn't a strong, confident one, but it because it, it is also quoted in Isaiah, and I think Paul in Romans 10 was citing Isaiah, uh, particularly I think it's Isaiah uh, 53, I believe it was, that he would be looking at. But the same concept comes up here in Nahum 115, which says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And he says this, Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And so this concept is picked up in Romans 10, where, where Paul says, you know, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. That's why I think it's in Isaiah, because that actually connects back into that idea mm -hmm, of beautiful mm -hmm. feet bringing good news is in Isaiah 53, early on in that chapter. And we know in Isaiah 53, that's specifically speaking of Jesus Christ. And I want to articulate 
that I believe that in this context, that in Nahum 115, he's thinking of this good message to Judah, who is under the suffering, who is suffering from Assyria, that this despicable nation, the Ninevites, will be destroyed. That's the good yeah. news here. And right. so what we see then, and this is this is important as Christians to understand, is that it is good news that God destroys his enemies. That um, I think sometimes Christians may struggle with that concept, but there is a sense that if you've ever been a victim of, of something, if you've ever been abused, or if there's ever been, um, or if you've ever seen grave injustice happen, there is an element that I think it's natural in our human heart to cry out for justice to happen, for, I, I would articulate, even retributive justice to be doled out. And what we see here in this text is that Nineveh will be utterly cut off because of their sin, that they will be thoroughly judged. And what we see then in terms of seeing this picked up and used in the New Testament is there's this reality. Uh, we've mentioned it before. Um, one of our pastors, uh, Jim Hamilton, he has a, a really helpful biblical theology book, and the title of it captures the theme, which is God's glory in salvation through judgment. God's glory is the revelation of his attributes or his character. And so God's glory is manifest or made known to the world then through salvation and judgment. And that's, that's important for us to know that God is glorious in both salvation and judgment. Romans 9 verses 22 and 23 get at this, that he has prepared, um, that there are uh, vessels of wrath that he's prepared for destruction. There's also uh, vessels of mercy that's prepared for salvation and that he receives glory for both of these. I would articulate even equal glory for both of these. So he's showing elements of his mercy, which he reveals in Exodus 34 verse 6, and he's revealing elements of his wrath and his judgment, which is revealed in Exodus uh, 34 verse 7. These are both true, like these aren't um, as though they're contradictory terms in God. This isn't a confliction that God is glorious in both salvation and judgment. And so this good news that is given then, that Nahum is, is given to the people, is that they will be saved from this Assyrian destruction through God destroying the Assyrians. And that's mm -hmm. good news. And so when that's picked up, then when we think about the concept being picked up in the New Testament through the personal work of Christ, I want to articulate that there's kind of a twofold thing we can we can understand this uh, better in light of Christ as. So let me put it this way. The first part then the, on the one side of the coin is that Jesus will save us from our enemies. So we rejoice that Christ has come into the world. And it says in places like in Colossians 2, it says that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities, that he has um, nailed the debt certificate of our debt to the cross and he has disarmed the rulers and the principalities and done away with them so that we can be free and and be saved from our enemies so um our enemy is our own sin primarily jesus has died to save us from our sin and he's also saved us from the rulers and principalities of the area he saved us from uh from the threat of satan from the threat of demons from the threat of uh, that realm. Uh, Jesus has done on the cross. He has saved us from our enemies, and he's also saved us from ourselves, because in a re very real sense, we're our own worst enemy. And so Jesus has done this by 
taking on our punishment on the cross. And this is the good news that we publicize to people, that we, pr- that we proclaim to others, that Christ has died to do away with sin and to do away with that final enemy, with it, which is death. And where is the sting of death? We know that it is gone, that the grave has no victory because Christ has conquered and won for us. So this is good news. This is our salvation. But then there's also a note that we want to pick up on here, and and we want to stick with the main theme of Nahum, which is the judgment of Nineveh and the judgment of God's enemies. And I want to look at chapter 3 in Nahum and read the first uh, four verses of this chapter. We read this. Woe to the bloody city all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over all the bodies, and for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms, behold, I am against you declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. This is strong language. Some people Mm -hmm, might be a little mm -hmm. uncomfortable with the idea of God lifting the skirts of the nations, exposing their nakedness, exposing their shame, and laughing at them. That is a strong picture, but that is what we see. Again, we've talked about this in another episode. It's not like this is this is the angry God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is all just happy, joy, joy stuff. We look at the book of Revelation and we see that Jesus comes in great power and glory. And as Paul writes in Thessalonians, to meet out judgment with his flaming sword against all who do not obey the gospel. And then further, we see in Revelation, uh, the Apostle John picks this up and uh, in Revelation chapter uh, 17, we see that he mentions the great prostitute and the beast. So we see this idea of Jezebel, the great whore of Babylon. This, it's, it's that, we saw that whoring language picked up in Nahum. It's picked up again here in Revelation that God uses the same imagery. And then in chapter 19, we see that just like, um, just like all these predictions that the Ninevites would be slain and destroyed, Jesus comes and, and slays and destroys. We see this in, I'm going to look at verse 11. We see, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread, pat, or he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is what Jesus will do when he returns, finally, to destroy all evil. And so what we learn then from this, in keeping with God's character, is that Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills this idea of God's glory being revealed in salvation uh, through judgment. So either you will repent of your sin 
you will turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will take your punishment upon himself, as Isaiah 53 says. That good news that comes, that is the beautiful reveal, is that there is a suffering servant who will take the transgression and iniquity of his people upon himself. That is, that is option one, and that is glorious good news that uh, we would call, call you to not only believe yourself, but to share with all others before it's too late, that Jesus has taken their sin, uh, has taken sin upon himself so that all who would believe in him would become the righteousness of God, so they would not be those slain by Jesus in Revelation 19, but would be those who are enjoying the marriage feast of the Lamb, reconciled to God. That's option one. The second option is this, if you do not repent, that Jesus will return and he will slay you. <laughs> like that is, the, that is the option we see here. And this doesn't mean that you're annihilated. What it means is that you, are, you will experience an eternal wrath of God given out to you. That he, that Jesus, the lamb, it says in Revelation uh, 19 through 20, is he is the one that will dole out the punishment in hell that you will experience his wrath forever, unmitigated. And that is good. And it leads, what's amazing, what we see in the book of Revelation, the judgment of God against his enemies leads the people in heaven to rejoice at God's goodness. When they see, when we see Jesus judging the wicked, we will rejoice and be glad that God is good and just. And so what we need to take from texts like Nahum, where we see the, the character of God, is that he will destroy his enemies. And we take heart in that. That is good news because it is the revelation of God's character. And it is the revel and anything that we see of God, we need to understand is good and altogether true and beautiful. And the Bible calls us to bow and knee before this God, to behold this God in his glory, to rejoice in him. And I would, I would implore if you're if happening to listen to this podcast and you haven't repented of your sin, that you take the first option, that you repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ before it is too late. Amen. <laughs> I would, I would agree and call you to the same thing. Uh, and what a glorious reality that we see in the book of Nahum that, uh, again, connecting back to the nature and character of God, that he is jealous and avenging, uh, and yet he is also slow to anger. Uh, and so as long as you still have breath in your lungs, you still have um, chance to uh, do exactly what Michael was just calling you to, which is to repent, to turn from your sin, and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're thankful that we have that opportunity and thankful that we can share that uh, with you as well. Any final closing thoughts before uh, you uh, sign us off, Michael? I would say that it is great news that God is a jealous God. It is both mm. the grounds of our comfort that he will not let us go because his jealousy will not allow him to uh, lose his glory or to be called unfaithful. And at the same time, his jealousy is terrifying to anyone who dares go against him because he will not allow anyone who is guilty to go unpunished because that is just as much of a tarnish to his reputation as it would be him losing a saint. So mm. this uh, jealousy of God is a gloriously good thing. Amen. Well, then, as always, we want to charge you to love God, know truth, and live accordingly.